Welcome to In Search of Wisdom, where each episode explores how to integrate timeless wisdom into everyday life. We engage in meaningful conversations with leading thinkers in philosophy, leadership, theology, and everything in between. We leave no stone unturned in search of wisdom. To learn more, visit us at perennialleader.com. Hello and welcome. Joshua here. Thank you for joining us. In today's episode, my guest is Father Augustine Weta, a Benedictine monk and the author of the book Humility Rules, St. Benedict's 12-step guide to genuine self-esteem. We discuss what humility is and is not, the ladder of humility and why it matters today, and much more. I hope you enjoy this episode with the wise and gracious Father Augustine Weta. Father Augustine Weta, welcome to the show. Thanks. It's good to be here or there or in both of our places, wherever we are. (laughs) (laughs) So you're a Benedictine monk at St. Louis Abbey in St. Louis, Missouri, and the author of Humility Rules. I really enjoyed the book and I'm excited for the conversation today. Before we get into humility, would you mind sharing a bit about yourself? No, I love talking about myself. In fact, <laughs> there's a monk of our of my community who loves to imitate me by saying, enough of me talking about me. What do you think of me? Uh, so I'll, with great pleasure, I will go on and on. Now, what is there to say? Grew up on an island in the Gulf of Mexico, was a beach lifeguard, surfer, went to university, became an archaeologist, came to St. Louis to go to grad school, changed my mind, became a monk. Got some degrees from Oxford, then got another degree in literature, and then I wrote this book on humility. How's that in a nutshell? (laughs) And I was once eaten by a shark. (laughs) I love it. Thanks so much. I remember remember that in the book. Maybe we'll touch on that a bit later. For those that may not be familiar, what is a Benedictine monk? Monks are, at their heart, just men who pray. In fact, we're so old that we are not technically a religious order. Uh, we don't even take the standard vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience. In fact, we take vows of stability, conversion, and obedience, in which obviously celibacy and poverty are implied, but not explicitly stated. So we have sort of the, the simplest vocation of them all. We simply pray. And anything we do besides praying is to support our prayer habit. Some monks brew beer, some monks make cakes, and my monastery runs a prep school. Great. It is great. I'm lucky. <laughs> and to the order of, of St. Benedict, who is St. Benedict? For those that may not be familiar, could you give us a quick background? Well, let's see. Fourth century, no, fifth century AD, St. Benedict was a brilliant high school student who decided he was fed up with his classes decided to run away from home, but instead of going to the big city or joining the service, he went and lived in a cave and prayed. And a friend of his would bring him food, I think once a day, would lower it down to him in a basket. And I'm assuming he took something back up in the basket with him when he left. And well, he was trying to base his life on those of the Desert Fathers who he had read about in books who lived in caves in the desert. And he was actually pretty good at it. In fact, he was so good at it that guys started coming out 
to the caves to live with him and around him. And pretty soon it was all chaos. And they asked him to take charge, which he did. Then they tried to kill him because he took charge and it was too much for their sensibilities. And I guess there were some rough characters among the group. So he went off to another mountain, started a new monastery and wrote a gentler rule, which is the same rule of life that Benedictines follow even today. Right. And when you wrote your book, Humility Rules, you you kind of framed it off of this rule and this ladder of humility. And you write that it's kind of counterintuitive today. You say it's it's not a focus on self-love, self-praise, self-promotion. It's not focused on the self at all. So what would you say it is? What is humility? A pithy definition would be accurate self-knowledge. I think people have a tendency to think of humility and meekness for that matter. There's a very fine distinction, which even I'm not quite sure I can call off the top of my head, but they tend to mistake it for self-deprecation or obsequiousness. In fact, St. Justin Martyr said, to deny your gifts is to do God no service at all. So you'll find that really humble people can often be very, very bold and almost blunt in how clearly they acknowledge their strengths. But the main thing is that humility, in addition to being self-knowledge is, or accurate self-knowledge, is actually a taking of the eyes off of the self and focusing them on God instead. I once asked an old monk, I don't think this is in the book, actually, if he knew he was saved. And he told me, he said, when I think of all the lousy things I've done, he says, I'm pretty sure I'm not saved. But when I think of Jesus and how merciful he is, well, then I think I am saved. So I just try to focus on Jesus. <laughs> Across many traditions, obviously, you see this virtue of, of humility come up, and it's often written kind of as a foundational building block to other virtues. Is that how you see it and how St. Benedict would see it as well as kind of a, a building block to other virtue? Yeah, I guess there's some debate over this because I, I've been reading a lot of Desert Fathers and they all they have different ideas about what's the basis. But if you think of the very first sin as the sin of pride, then and as pride as the mother of all sins, then certainly humility must be the mother of the virtues. And you certainly can't accept any of the virtues until you're humble enough to receive them as a gift. The, the theological virtues, at any rate, even the Aristotelian virtues, which take just practice and hard work, even those require a certain amount of acknowledging your own weakness and strengths. I guess I, I'm prejudiced in regards to this, but yes, I think humility is the mother of all the virtues. <laughs> <laughs> Getting into some of the steps, which you kind of frame the book on these different mm -hmm. steps. In step two, you list it as, as denial, if we could go through a few of these. I mean, you write it of self-fulfillment is not about self-satisfaction. How do you kind of navigate and find that, that kind of balance and differentiate between the two? The self-fulfillment and self-satisfaction. <laughs> Funny, I, I, I wrote it, but I hadn't really thought it through, I guess. Well, self-fulfillment often requires self-denial, doesn't it? Self-satisfaction says that you've achieved what you want and there's nowhere else to go. 
which I suppose is why so many self-satisfied people are also so depressed and insecure because what's there left to look forward to? St. Augustine says you're never, your heart is restless till it rests with God. And so in its own oddly ironic manner, self-fulfillment, true self-fulfillment is always going to come up short because you'll never, not until you're dead, will you ever see that which truly fills you up. As you mentioned earlier, and in the book quite a bit of being a monk is is about prayer and yeah. early morning prayer. You kind of use an example of 50% of holiness simply being getting to bed on, on time. <laughs> um, yeah. And I guess when you, when I was kind of thinking about that self-satisfaction around that kind of morning snooze button, if you will, what would you say are kind of some other practices other than kind of getting to bed on time? Are there any other simple kind of small practices that come to mind around this denial? Yeah, the big one, and especially for mugs, and I think really the skill we really need to learn in this country right now is silence. First silence and then listening. There's no listening, of course, without silence, but it just seems to me that we spend an awful lot of time shouting our own opinions over the opinions of others and not much time actually listening. And it is a dangerous thing to listen to other people. There are evil people out there with very convincing things to say, and you don't want to be so open-minded that your brain falls out. But the golden rule is that we do unto others as we would have done to ourselves. And I actually, I got in some trouble recently, well, not much trouble, but a little bit of trouble with a group. I was asked to come give a talk to a group, a big pro-life group here in St. Louis. And at the end of the, the talk, I gave them as homework to go home and look up Planned Parenthood's website and find three things they agreed with. <laughs> And, you know, I mean, I do believe Planned Parenthood is an evil organization. I really do. But if we're ever going to hope to make conversions, we've got to show them that we're listening to them as well. How awesome would it be if you're in one of these debates with them, with one of these people, and you say, now, wait a second, I was on Planned Parenthood's website, and I think they do this, this, and this, and this is really great what they have to say about this. Now, on the other hand, you know... Because, of course, we want them coming to our websites and listening to what we have to say, and we hope that we have things to say that they would agree with, that they would embrace. And I also, I think with very few exceptions, and probably the doctors of these places among them, and maybe some of the medical professionals, I think most people that are call themselves pro-choice are basically good people. They want the same goal. They just, I firmly believe, have a mistaken way of seeking it. So the, to insist that they are all evil or to frame one's argument in those terms, I think is not likely to make many conversions. That's a good transition to the, the next step, I think, which is a, around obedience. You write about this mutual obedience and uh, kind of give some stories throughout the book of living in this community. How would you say kind of connection and, and love connects to humility? This is not in the book because it just happened to me over the summer, but it's going to be part of some sort of book. Here in St. Louis, we had a, a big, I don't know, hubbub over our statue of our namesake, the, the big statue of St. Louis here in St. Louis. There's a statue of the Crusader King on his horse holding his sword in the air. And 
this fellow named Umar Lee, who's a Muslim, decided he wanted it torn down. And he had this big protest there. And there was uh, pictures of people getting hit and people throwing things and yelling at each other. And so I actually, I went down there after I saw these pictures, which were very disturbing. I went down there to pray the rosary with about 100 or 200 other Catholics. And the interesting thing was that day after day, I wasn't there to protest or to make a point. I just felt that there needed, where there was that much anger, a monk should be in the middle of that, (laughs) just praying and perhaps being some sort of witness to humility. And I remember I, I was walking back to my car and this guy looked, came over and he said, hey, would you mind engaging in a polite discourse? <laughs> and I said, of course not. And he said, well, I'm Jewish and that king of yours was a genocidal monarch and he killed thousands of Jews. And I think the statue needs to be torn down. And I had to stop because, you know, my first reaction is to be like, well, what the heck do you know about him? But Instead, I thought real carefully about what he was saying in, I hope, humility. And I thought, you know what? If he's right, if he's right, then he has a right to be angry. So I said, look, I'm going to go home and I'm going to look this up. And I'm not just going to look at Catholic sources. I'm going to really look this up. And if you're right, and he was a genocidal maniac, then I will come back and I will help you tear down that statue. And I meant it because truly, we do not need a saint that does that kind of thing. And I said, exactly how many Jews do you think he killed? And he thought about it for a second. And he goes, well, honestly, I didn't look that up either. A friend told me and I just believed him. (laughs) So I said, well, you can't look up everything, right? You can't double check every fact you're ever told. So if your friend's right, then we'll meet back here maybe tomorrow and talk about it again. And he said, okay. And he said, my name's David and it's my birthday. And I said, happy birthday, David. And And we didn't shake hands because of the coronavirus thing, but I think we parted friends. And the funny thing is I kept going back every night for the next seven nights. And every single night I had a conversation like that. I talked to Hmm. this African-American guy and his kids, these two African-American women who were wearing Black Lives Matter buttons. Because on the way past back to my car, I looked over and I thought, I do believe that Black Lives Matter, right? So I said, Black Lives do matter. And she started crying and she said, thank you. And she said, you know, all lives matter, which was the last thing I expected to hear. I talked to two gay joggers and I'm pretty sure they were gay because one of them had a T-shirt on that said, I'm gay. And every night this happened over and over again. I hope this story isn't going on too long. Just shake your head and make a sign at the, okay, if I'm going on and on. But a week later, there was a new rally led by this guy, Umar Lee to tear down the statue. And I thought, oh boy, this is going to be bad. So I confess that I wrote a little note and left it on my bed that said, if anything happens to me, it was for Jesus, you know? (laughs) And I went there and there were like 1,500 Catholics there. And I was pretty psyched to see that many Catholics standing up for themselves because we tend to roll over and play dead. I don't know. One guy came over and said, hey, Father, you're safe, you know? And And he was packing a pistol. And I was like, oh gosh, you know, I'm glad he's here. But at the same time, that's not why I'm here. I'm here to pray, you know? So I started backing up sort of out of the group because again, I was proud of the people who were there, but that's not my job to protest. My job is just to be a witness to peace. And I had about a thousand copies of the prayer of St. Francis with me. And I was reading those and 
I kept backing up, backing up, backing up, backing up, backing up. And pretty soon the, the rosary was over and I looked around and nobody around me was praying, right? There are these like hipsters and women in hijabs. And I actually found that I was standing with the Satanists because they were all wearing black and I kind of felt like I fit in. So I look over at this kid on my left and all the Catholics are leaving and I'm standing there in the middle of all the protesters. And I said, so uh, what do you think? (laughs) And he said, he looked at me, he's this kid with dreadlocks and tattoos. He says, black kid. He says, well, I think there's some racists in that group. And I looked back at the group and I said, you know, well, there, yeah, I think there probably are. (laughs) I mean, wouldn't there be? And I think there's some bad people in Black Lives Matter, right? And he goes, yeah, probably. And and then we got to talk and he said, well, I said, you're not here to pray the rosary, are you? <laughs> he said, no. He said, you're not one of those religious people, are you? And I looked at him. I was dressed, you know, as a monk. I have black hood. And I said, so I said, oh, wait, now you can't go out in a black hoodie and get around being judged. Now everybody's got to make assumptions about me. And luckily for me, he thought that was kind of funny. And the people around me thought it was funny. And we so we started talking. We're talking about Black Lives Matter and about racial justice and it was a great conversation. And I finally said to him, yeah, but look, you know, this Umar Lee character, like he's a bad guy, right? I mean, I've seen him online. He's had some mean things to say. He's an evil man. And he said, well, why don't you ask him yourself? He's standing on your left. (laughs) So I looked around and there he is. He holds out his hand to shake my hand. And I figured at that point I had nothing to lose. So I said, Mr. Lee, I hear you are an evil, violent man. And he said to me, where'd you hear that? And I said, the internet. (laughs) And I said, but but in my own defense, I said, I've also seen you on the news. And he said, oh, right. And the news treats Catholics fairly, huh? I thought, oh, man, like like I don't have a leg to stand on. So I, I just sort of kind of had to roll over and play dead at that point. And I said, well, look, and besides that, all the Catholics are gone now. And I was surrounded by Muslims and Satanists and Black Lives Matter activists. And I thought... I got to get out of here. So I said, well, I'll just, I'll pray for you guys. And he said, well, why don't you pray with us? And I said, well, you know, I, uh, I could. Next thing I know, I'm handing out copies of the prayer of St. Francis. And the Muslims are really excited about this because they'd heard about him. And then they're handing me a, one of them handed me a bottle of ice water. And then Mr. Lee handed me a, a megaphone. And of course I was on the news the next day leading a Black Lives Matter protest which at the statue which didn't go over well went over well with some people and not over particularly well with others but anyway he said well okay ready set go and uh i just said look i don't agree with anything you're saying out here i think the statue needs to stay but jesus said (laughs) if you give but a cup of cold water to one of my little ones then you don't lose your reward and somebody just came up to me like five minutes ago and handed me a cup of cold water. So yeah, I'll pray with you guys. So all of us together, even the Satanists, we were all praying the prayer of St. Francis, make me an instrument of your peace. You know, and it was really Umar Lee and I are still friends on Twitter. We send each other messages back and forth. And I really, to make a short story longer, I think that's where mutual obedience comes into play that especially when you think someone has your worst interests at mind, assuming the opposite, or or even not that, because I didn't even do that. I just, I was just sort of honest with them. Well, having the humility to listen very carefully to what they're saying, and not what you think they mean, 
is about obedience too. Because we say all sorts, uh, it's funny, if you listen to a lot of the sort of online debates and things, people are always saying, so what you're saying is, and then they recharacterize the other person's argument in the least favorable light. And that's not obedience. That's not mutual. That's not even respect. And it's certainly not humility. If we try to assume, maybe not assume the best, but at least take people at their word, I think we can get past a lot of the big difficulties we're having in our country right now. But then no one's really asking me, so. Well, you are. So. Yeah. No, I appreciate you sharing the story. That's a great story and, uh, and happy to hear that. Yeah, look up, look up Umar Lee. He's a much more complex character than they made him out to be. Yeah. No, I think we probably all are more, a little more complex than we are. Yeah. I think he deserves more Catholic followers on Twitter. I, he'll say things we don't like, but judge for yourself. <laughs> yeah. But around step six, around this serenity, which I think kind of ties into this, mm-hmm. and you you kind of state that you, you can't be serene and resentful at the, <clears throat> same, at the same time. So some of these differences that we may have, or maybe it turns into resentment. How do we let that resentment go? Yeah, well, you're, you're picking the wrong moment to ask me this. <laughs> <laughs> um, my brethren know, my brethren more than anyone see the deep and persistent irony of me writing a book on humility or talking about any of this. In the monastery, our lives haven't changed all that much with COVID. It's just a little more of what we usually do, <laughs> which is hang out together, live together, pray together, and have to look at each other all day. So at the moment, I'm feeling pretty judgmental of my brethren and resentful of this or that. I'll tell you what other people have told me. (laughs) I was just actually talking to my confessor about this, and he said what he does is he doesn't just forgive them because it's really hard to forgive somebody who's not asking for forgiveness and who doesn't intend to reform. (laughs) So instead, he says, I call down as many blessings as I can on them. Like I say, Lord, bless brother so-and-so with this and this and this, and I hope he gets this and this and this, and I hope this makes him happy and this makes him joyful and this makes him holy. And I want all these things, not just, I hope brother so-and-so finally gets a clue and I hope he quits doing this. And I hope it's, I want to bless him with all these beautiful things. And that has had limited success for me. But the limits, of course, are all my own. So there's that. Oh, as a practical thing, I find sometimes that doing an anonymous good deed for that person helps. And it's funny how often they feel it. Like uh, some brother who, oh, I don't know, didn't light the candles when he ought to have. I I don't know. I'm making it up. That if I'll go and I'll maybe do his dishes because I realize he forgot, but not tell anybody. And then a couple of days later, they kind of sense that something nice has been done for them and they, they go lighten other people's candles or something. <laughs> it's strange how that works. People have this sort of sixth sense of when someone means them well. So there's that. You know, and then, of course, there's always what uh, Dorotheus of Gaza said, which is that your anger is your own fault. People don't make you angry. If you're angry at what your brother does, you are a pile of dry leaves. He was just the breeze that blew you over. If you haven't read Dorotheus of Gaza's conferences, then it's about time. I could go on and on about him too. But so serenity, I think, also begins with acknowledging that no one has control over your emotions but you. 
You decide whether you're happy or sad. You decide whether you're angry or resentful. It's not they made me angry. They did this and it made me resentful. You have more, see, and this is again that, that strange sort of self-confidence that comes with humility, that boldness that seems almost to border on pride sometimes. This is a little off topic, but I remember one of my favorite Saturday Night Live skits. It was back in the 90s or 80s, this, or maybe, yeah, 90s, I guess, this it was the self-help guru who would say, now you just look at yourself in the mirror and you say, I'm beautiful and I'm pleasant and doggone it, people like me. And I remember in one of the skits, they had Michael Jordan on there. And he says, so Michael, what do you do? He says, I'm a basketball player. He says, well, you know, Michael, surely there are days when you just can't dribble that ball, right? And he goes, no. He says, well, yeah, but sometimes perhaps it's just hard to get the ball in the basket, right? And he goes, no, no, not really. You know, because he's Michael Jordan. He's the greatest of all time, right? And finally, the, the interviewer breaks down in tears and says, I'm the worst therapist ever. You know, that's exactly it, that your humility gives you the power. If he had asked him what a great baseball player he was, I suspect he would have had a different answer. But but being humble in the right areas gives you the strength to be confident in other areas where you really do have the right to it by the grace of God. My favorite step in the book was this uh, self-abasement. <laughs> I had to look up that word abasement, didn't know what that what that meant. You write that it, this genuine self-abasement represents an advanced stage of, of spiritual development. How do you see humility kind of connecting to this knowing yourself and some of the stuff you've already kind of discussed? Well, I I think self-abasement is about having everything in perspective. As great as he is, Michael Jordan realizes, I suspect, because he, you know, I mean, if you listen to interviews, I don't know why. Well, I know why I'm so obsessed with Michael Jordan, because everybody is, because he's awesome. But he is actually a surprisingly humble man in many respects. And I suspect if you asked him what his influence on basketball was, he'd say, I am basketball. <laughs> you know, If you asked him what his influence on world politics was, I would hope he'd have more perspective on that. <laughs> and for the Christian, that perspective is, is always keeping your talents and your achievements in the presence of God. And that's why I think, you know, such great saints as Teresa of Avila can say things like, I'm a worm, I'm nothing. I'm, you know, you go, wait, no, you're not. You're St. Teresa, you're a doctor of the church. But because they're so close to God, they can see their own achievements in perspective. In relation to infinity, in relation to omniscience and omnipotence and omnibenevolence, well, what have I ever done that's anything more than worm-like? You know, uh, it's not self-loathing. When they say, I'm a worm, it's not saying that there's anything wrong with that worm. <laughs> it's that in comparison to God, it's pretty insignificant. And, and in a way, that takes the pressure off. I remember that one of the things that inspired this book was that I ended up in a pharmacy a few years ago asking, trying to get some stuff for one of the old monks. And there were these self-help books on the shelf. And one of them was... The Teenager's Guide to Self-Esteem, subtitle, 
learning to love the most important person in the world. And I'd been the chapel, a high school chaplain for like five years at that point. I was like, this is the worst advice you could ever give a teenager. Like they already think they're the center of the universe. And now you have just upped the pressure on them. And I went on. Finally, they asked, they gave me the book and asked me to leave. Real humility takes a lot of the pressure or self-abasement rather is far from being self-loathing. It's just taking the pressure off. What is it? Janet Joplin said, freedom's just another word for nothing left to lose. Around that, it does seem difficult to find that that balance. That I'm, I'm sure you, you work with the young people quite a bit at the school there. And one of the things you write around repentance is that human beings can tend to go too far with it. You think about that, yeah. that balance of repenting and then not necessarily carrying these things around for whole lives. How do you find that balance or what has worked for you? <laughs> well, I, I'm not by nature a very balanced person. And I say that in all, in all false humility. It also happens to be true that, that I tend to extremes. The story that I wanted to take out of the book, that the editors at Ignatius insisted that I keep in the book, and that now turned into everyone's favorite story, which is, pro I suspect where you're going with this, is what my students now refer to as the Rosebush story. So I better tell it now that I've alluded to it. But I decided during my novitiate to get rid of lustful thoughts. And having read the biography of St. Francis and learned that he threw himself into a rose bush, I decided that would work for me. And well, okay, to make a long, you'll have to read the book, but to make a long story short, it did not work for me. I ended up stuck in the rose bush and it took my novice master and several other monks a long time to pry me out of there with all the thorns and everything. And what my novice master said to me after all was said and done was that asceticism is good in its own right, but not if it isn't subject to obedience. He said, we've all been there, Augustine. And I said, in the rosebush? He said, no. <laughs> but he says, we've all done stupid things in the name of what is right. So just check in with me before you attempt any further feats of asceticism. Of course, I didn't. And I ended up going on black fasts and gave myself ulcers. And, but I, I think, yeah, when it comes to repentance and proportion, I often find myself in the confessional joking with penitents, particularly guys, because, it, well, I, it's no secret, and I'm not revealing anything of my <laughs> penance when I say that pornography is a huge problem with America's youth and America's male population. But everyone thinks they're the only person that struggles with this, you know, and it's in, in a way I find confession almost unbearably boring from my perspective. But the one part that I really enjoy saying is, look, this is not the end of the world. You are not the greatest sinner that ever lived. You know? mm -hmm. Nothing you're going to say in here is ever going to scandalize or surprise me. And I've heard every book, every sin in the book. Now go off and just relax. Your sin is forgiven. The battle's won. Like, let go of it, <laughs> you know, because if the devil can't get you to stop doing the wrong thing, I I'm convinced he will get you to obsess with not doing it. <laughs> and that's not as bad as giving in, but it's still you're obsessed with the evil. I remember actually my first, one of the very first monks I met, I, I asked him at this time, I was pretty heavily into being a surfer dude. And I said, what do you do if you see a, a hot chick walking down the street towards you? 
And he said, well, he said, I don't know what the others do, but I take my scapular and I put it over my head. And I said, really? He goes, no, <laughs> what a stupid idea. <laughs> he said, no. He says, I thank God for the beauty of his creation. I get on with my life. You know, it's, we tend to make such a big deal out of sin. And Thomas Aquinas or Augustine first defined sin as a vacuum or evil as a vacuum and Aquinas as sin as a misguided good. So if you really think about it, evil has no substance at all. It has no power over us that we don't give it. I have a friend who struggles with some things, and when he comes up against his sins, he just says, I don't have time for this. <laughs> Jesus, and he says the name of Jesus, and then his mantra is, Jesus, I don't have time for this. <laughs> I really think he's well on the way to recovery, as it were, because just not having time for it is a step in the right direction, I think. Great. Thanks so much. Um, <laughs> You mentioned earlier around silence and the importance of it. How would you say silence can help us cultivate humility? Well, I think, first of all, I think we have to get over being scared of silence. There was an age, I think, when silence came more naturally to people, when they didn't carry around the entertainment industry wherever they went, when they didn't have access to all the information in the world at all times, wherever they were. They really kind of had no choice but to sit by the tree and wait in silence. So now I think we have to carve out silence in our day in a way that others, our predecessors didn't. One of our monks at a community meeting just recently said, you know, in my day, when the bell rang for prayer, the monk would drop what he was doing and run to church. He says, now, while we're in prayer, if your cell phone rings, you drop your prayers and you answer your phone. And we all sort of looked at each other sheepishly and, yeah, I won't say what else happened at that meeting, but life has been turned upside down in this respect that virtually nothing, no moment in our day is without silence. So one of the kids was telling me that he answers all of his emails in the bathroom. So that means that not even then does he have silence. He brings his phone even there with him. On the other hand, I have another student who cleaned out his closet, keeps all of his clothes on a shelf and put a chair in his closet where he sits with the door closed for five minutes a day, he said, though I suspect he does more than that. And this is a, so your sort of classic ADHD, hyperactive, smart aleck kid. But he's figured out the only way to do it is to create a physical space that he literally locks himself into. Nothing to see, nothing to say, nothing to hear. And he turns off his cell phone and I mean, uh, I, it seems to be working for him, but there's no listen, There's no humility without without silence because there's no listening without silence. So grateful for the time. As we start to kind of wrap up, I've got a, a few more questions, if I could, that I'm really curious kind of your thoughts on. You write as you wrap up the book around humility should never be confused with mediocrity. <laughs> what do you mean by that? Well... I'm currently writing three books by mistake. One of them's on failure, one of them's on decision making, and I can't remember the third one. Oh, and the Desert Fathers. People, I think, tend to equate humility with acknowledging your failures, but I think that's only half of the picture. I've made it a sort of hobby of mine to collect my favorite failure saints, saints who went out, who had a calling to do something, never did it, 
and became saints. Like our own local gal, she's from St. Louis, Philippine Duchenne. Her vocation, she was convinced, and we, we believe it was her vocation, to convert the Indians. She came to America, founded two girls' schools. The girls hated her. Two convents, one of which shut down. And then she went off to the Cahokia and converted exactly one Indian who apostatized three weeks after she died. So if ever there was an unsuccessful life in conventional terms, it was hers. But the victory in the end is God's. And so she becomes one of the greatest human beings in our history simply by her perseverance. And so she can be both a failure and a saint at the same time. Well, and if you think about, I guess, the crucifixion is the fusion of humanity's greatest failure with our greatest triumph. So when I talk about humility not being equated with mediocrity, what I think I mean is that you still you still aim for holiness. Every single one of us is called to be a saint. And we know that. That is church teaching. We are called to be saints and like canonizable actual saints, every single one of us. So really to live, to do anything less is not living up to your potential, not accepting all the gifts that God has given you. And that really is mediocrity, (laughs) but it's certainly not humility. If someone listening was looking for a single step to focus on as a starting point to being more, more humble, where would you advise them to look? Well, St. Benedict says you start with the fear of God. That's step number one. But I almost wonder if silence isn't even a prelude to that. I guess if I'm going to go with the whole theme of today's discussion, then I'd have to say be silent. Actually, I was interviewed for some magazine, and I can't remember which one it was now. And they said, if you had two minutes to tell everyone in the world something, what would it be? And the answer came like a gift from God. I said, oh, I wouldn't say anything at all. I would give everybody in the world two minutes of silence. And this just blew them away like it was something revolutionary or ingenious. I actually did not answer the question. But I also believe that that's true, that if you can just, if you can carve out at first two minutes, just 120 seconds a day to waste to absolutely waste for Jesus, not to pray the rosary, not to say any memorized prayers, not to achieve anything at all, just to sit there and waste it in the presence of God, then I think that's, I think that's the beginning for us. And fear will come with that. You'll, you'll be afraid enough. <laughs> so if you had the, the opportunity to grab a seat next to St. Benedict and have him clarify or elaborate on on any particular uh, step. Is there anything that kind of comes to mind? Actually, I was just thinking I would ask him about his crow. He had a pet (laughs) raven. Because I've always been kind of intrigued by this saintly relationship with animals that they, all these saints seem to have this way of communicating almost with animals. And I can't seem to do that as hard as I try. St. Benedict apparently had this raven that watched out for him and actually saved his life on more than one occasion. So I th- that's where my mind was while you were starting that question. I think if if I were going to ask him personally, I think it would probably be about repentance. Maybe that says more about me than it does about anybody, but well, maybe not. I have trouble being sorry for my sins. Our first abbot 
he would be really angry with me if he knew I was telling you this story. But when I first joined the monastery, our abbot was just a great man, top of his class at Harvard. He had polio when he was little, so he's crippled from the waist down. But he was the first disabled Rhodes Scholar to go to Oxford, converted by Elizabeth Anscombe, of all people. Anyway, he was elected abbot during my novitiate. And I heard him screaming in his room, and it turned out he was having a nightmare. And I woke him up, and he went back to sleep. And the next day, I needled him all day, asking him what he was dreaming about. What are you dreaming about? What are you dreaming about? Because that's the kind of guy I am. And he finally said, I'll tell you, but you got to quit asking. I said, fine. He said, I was dreaming about my sins. And I thought, oh, great, because I dream about my sins, but I don't, I don't consider them nightmares. Like, so I, the thing is that I don't know that I'm ever really sorry for my sins. In fact, sometimes at my, with my confessor, I'll say, oh, my God, I am half-heartedly sorry for having offended you. Mm-hmm. And one of my favorite prayers is, he wrote the Seven Story Mountain, Thomas Merton. Merton's prayer, it says something like, Lord, I have no idea what I'm doing. I have no idea where I'm going. I have no idea what the right thing to do is. And even if I knew it, I wouldn't want to do it. But I want to want to do the right thing. I understand that that's sufficient. (laughs) (laughs) I don't want to do the right thing, but I want to want to do the right thing. And that's a start. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. In the process of researching, and obviously you're doing some writing now, has there been anything that's really kind of surprised you or, or really changed your perspective? You mean in my most recent stuff? Yes. Or, or humility yeah. rules, either or. <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. I want to talk about the new stuff. The Desert Fathers are just always throwing me for a loop. I mean, there are some stories. I've been a monk for 20 years, and these are stories that monks tell each other. And yet I've never heard some of them. Uh, in fact, I'm going to read you one or two just for the fun of it. Um, oh, that'd be great. Yeah, because I'm working on my own sort of translation. It's a little bit self-flattering to call it translation because I use a dictionary and someone else's translation. But let's see. Oh, here we go. One day, wishing to distract Father Pambo from his prayers. They all have these wonderful names. John the Dwarf, the Tall Brothers, Abba Pambo. Anyway, One day, wishing to distract Abba Pambo from his prayers, the demons gathered together and stuck feathers to one of their own to make him look like an angel. Then, hoping to make the old man laugh, they marched the feathered fiend around his cell, carrying him on their shoulders and chanting, Go, 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 go. Indeed, Pambo did laugh, and so the demons celebrated. Ha, ha, ha. We made Pambo laugh. The old monk shook his head and replied, I was just now reading the scriptures about the powerlessness of the devil and his minions, so I couldn't help noticing how many of you it took to imitate just one angel. (laughs) (laughs) Abba Sisuus of Caliban slept through his prayers so often that just to stay awake, he started saying them on the edge of a cliff. During one of these prayers, an angel of God appeared to him and said, Sisuus, stop this. Don't do it again, and don't teach anyone else to do it either. Then the angel carried him somewhere safer. (laughs) (laughs) And you can see this bold humility, Pambo and Sisyphus. I guess Pambo's humility in knowing that the power was God's, and the the humility of Sisyphus 
in being willing to tell the story later because <laughs> there's no one else there to hear. So obviously he's the one who went back and told somebody, yeah, I did this. It was stupid. And God had to send an angel to keep me from doing it again. <laughs> one more, one more. And then a brother asked Abba Sisos, what should I do if I fall into sin? The old man answered, get up. <laughs> but what if I could fall back into sin? Get up again. And if I continue to fall, get up again and again. He said, you never know when death will come for you. You might get lucky. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, and these are clearly guys who had the same struggles. Otherwise, they wouldn't know the answer so quickly. Yeah. I appreciate you sharing. I was wondering if as a way to close, maybe you could kind of discuss perseverance. You write, if you want to be holy, happy, and humble, avoid grumbling above all else. <laughs> Well, that's good. We could spend a whole hour talking about grumbling. Yeah. Yeah. What is that? And uh, how do we avoid it? Well, okay. I, I give a whole like five-day retreat on grumbling and it cures. Well, I'll start with the easiest and most superficial way, which is via a extremely cool psychological term, the fundamental attribution error. And psychologists throw this around. The idea is that when you do something shady, you assume that the people around you understand that there were circumstantial, there are circumstances, right? So if I cut in line in front of someone at the grocery store, I say, you know, I'm in a terrible rush. And I've had a horrible day and I'm sure these people understand. But if someone cuts in front of me, it's because they're a jerk, right? So I attribute character flaws for other people's misdeeds and circumstances for my, my misdeeds. Or a better way of putting this is, when I'm on the highway, everybody I pass is a moron. Everybody who passes me is a maniac. But I'm the one guy on the highway who's found the exact correct speed, right? Now, the, the solution is to recognize that fundamental error in attributing motives to other people and to apply them equally across the board to say, that person may be a jerk. But not to jump to that conclusion, right? To instead make the same assumptions when judging their actions as you would when judging yours. And then if that doesn't work, you apologize. <laughs> and St. Benedict says you throw yourself on the floor and you don't get up until you get a blessing. And you don't wait to see who's wrong before you apologize. You just do it. As soon as you see somebody's angry, you just start apologizing. <laughs> I love it. Well, it's all much more complex than that. And maybe I can come back on your show sometime and talk about apologies. <laughs> that would be great. And I want to say congratulations on the book. It seems to be doing extremely well. I was looking on yeah. Amazon. There's over 400 five-star reviews. So uh, congratulations for that. copies sold. Even Amazon's giving me respect now. <laughs> that's, that all that's wonderful. And I would encourage anybody, anybody listening to uh, pick it up. So this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about your work? Well, I have a website. I'm not exactly sure what it is, but it's like AugustinWetta.com. If you do a Google search for Surfing Monk, I'm the first thing that comes up, so you can get there that way. Ignatius Press just published a novel that I wrote, which is kind of the fictional sister of the humility book. Odysseus decides he's going to work his way out of Dante's hell. It's kind of a fantasy book high fantasy, I guess they would call it. So Ignatius Press or Amazon or just so drop me an email. I think that's how you found me, isn't it? Through my Absolutely. website. <laughs> Love it. Well, Father Augustine Weta, I appreciate your time today. It has been a pleasure. 
Oh, yeah, an honor. Really, thank you so much. This was great. It was like sitting in someone's living room. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you gained a bit of wisdom. You can check out the show notes at perennialleader.com slash podcast. If you enjoyed the show and would like to support, please subscribe, share with a friend, and leave a review. It's a small thing that has a big impact. Until next time, be wise and be well. Be well.